It's one thing for a contracting officer to help a bidder in a tight contract competition to fix errors in its bid. It's another thing to disclose information from a competitor's offer. Well, that's what happened in a State Department plan to recompete protective services. We get details from Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo. And Joe, this took place overseas, but tell us more about this case. This was a procurement by the Department of State for local guard services for its embassy in Dakar, Senegal. The competitors were the incumbent, longtime incumbent, Sagam Securite Senegal, and a competitor, Torres SAES Security Joint Venture. Those were the two competitors left after a competitive range determination and negotiations. When State announced the awardee as Torres, Sagam protested to GAO. Before GAO could decide the protest, the Department of State voluntarily decided to conduct corrective action and do a reevaluation. While it was doing the reevaluation, another issue arose that State focused on, which is the disclosure of aspects of Sagam's proposal to Torres. And after looking into that, State decided that the uh, Procurement Integrity Act had been violated and that it needed to do something about that. But it was the contracting officer that brought this to light in the first place. So it wasn't like they were trying to be subterfuge here. They discovered this had happened. It was definitely something that State had discovered upon reevaluation. However, the disclosure had taken place in the course of a discussion. So the contracting officer was, I'm sure, involved in that as well. And it was price information from Sagam that went over to Torres, correct? Yeah, this is very interesting. The information had to do with details of uh, Sagam's price proposal explaining how its compensation plan and schemes met local labor laws in Senegal and you know local labor agreements you know it very much had to do with how the compensation was structured and why it was appropriate under local law if this was being disclosed to a competitor obviously they were struggling meeting those requirements and the contracting officer gave them very specific help on how to do that. Right. Okay. So then upper level people at state discovered this and knew that this was a possible Procurement Integrity Act violation. So then what happened? So the Department of State announced that it had found this problem and was going to redress it by canceling the solicitation and conducting the procurement all over again. Sagam thought that wasn't good enough. And so it brought another protest, which ended up in the Court of Federal Claims. The Court of Federal Claims looked at the matter and agreed with Sagam. It felt that merely doing the procurement all over again uh, would not really redress the issue because the competitor would still have that information that had been leaked about how to comply with local labor laws. In other words, it was information the competitor could not unknow at that point. Absolutely. So the decision was of the court was they had to return the procurement to its state before the cancellation occurred. So the cancellation was nullified. Torres was disqualified from the procurement, not because of its own inappropriate behavior, but because it had received improper information. Uh, and that left Sagam Securite as the only viable offeror. And the Department of State was told it needed to make a award to Sagam if it were a responsible prospective contractor. And as, as the incumbent, it presumably was then. Exactly. It probably was. So it looked like a single track going to a particular destination at that point. 
We're speaking with Joseph Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. And by the way, all of this court and protesting and contracting activity, was it taking place in Senegal or was it in sending documents back to the courts here or was this procurement conducted by people in the United States? It looks like the procurement was conducted in Senegal. The Department of State defends these procurements out of its uh, legal offices here And the forums, GAO and the Court of Federal Claims, are definitely based in Washington, D.C. And this is not quite the end of it either. There was more legal back and forth. Well, there is, and and it continues to this day. The Court of Federal Claims issued a permanent injunction saying this is what the uh, agency needs to do. The Department of State waited for over two months and then decided it was going to file an appeal. And it did, did appeal judgment to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. That injunction, however, was still in effect. And what the Department of State wanted to do to preserve its options was to keep from going forward and making the award to Sagam. It then filed a motion at the Court of Federal Claims to stay the injunction pending the resolution of the appeal. The judge did not grant that stay. It felt that the Department of State had never explained why just canceling the solicitation and reconducting the the procurement would be an adequate remedy. Uh, It felt the delay would harm SAGAM, which was having trouble retaining staff because of the temporary and uncertain nature of its contract. And on balance, the weight of factors in determining whether to stay the injunction favored SAGAM, not the Department of State. So now we have a situation where the injunction you know, has not been stayed. Uh, and the injunction and required what then specifically? The, inj- the injunction required the Department of State to judge whether or not Sagam was a responsible offeror and if it was responsible to go forward and make the award. That is a very unusual kind of remedy in a bid protest, I need to underscore. Usually it results in a recompetition or reevaluation of proposals. A situation where award is basically directed toward a particular offeror only happens when that is the only reasonable and legal outcome of the case. And it's very unusual. Here, however, state still has a shot at delaying that. They could go to the federal circuit and ask them for a stay. So we'll have to see what happens. But the matter is up on appeal right now. So who's guarding the embassy in Senegal at this point? Presumably, it's still Sagam under a series of short sole source extensions. Right. In reality, the fact is that if the other company, Torres, were to somehow get the award, all the guards now working for Sagam would just move over to Torres. I mean, that's how these things generally work. I'm not sure how gigantic that industry is in a place like Senegal. So at least the State Department employees would see the same guard coming in the next morning. That's my guess. I can't say that for sure, but that's my guess. So right now, it's still in the air while State Department decides its options whether to just follow the injunction or to appeal once again. That's basically it. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. Thanks so much. You're welcome. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. 
During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening, 
to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.